Thanks, Olivia. Hey, I'm Ben, one of the pastors here at EV Church. It's good to be gathered this morning, and we're getting to that point in the year for Christmas where we're starting to think about presents. And so what I want to do today is a couple of things. I want to focus us on who Jesus is uh, and, and that he is actually at the center of Christmas. And so that's why we've been doing this series, working through different songs that speak to and remind us of who Jesus is and get us to just pause and, and take a moment to just reflect not on the consumeristic nature or even the family or the time off or the holidays, but on our Lord, Jesus Christ. And so this time of year, we are getting into presents. And I don't know if, like me, you've ever received an aspirational present uh, <laughs> or, or given an aspirational present. You know, the, uh, I've gotten diaries for Christmas before. There's like a subtle hint there. Um, or, or, you know, like you think, hey, I'm just going to buy a new pair of running shoes and my 2024 is going to look so different. Like we're getting to that point in the year where it's like if you're going to order online, you've got to do it pretty quick, two weeks to Christmas. And, and I think sometimes the, the presents that we buy or receive uh, are of an aspirational nature. There's a, this chance to kind of stop and, and slow down towards the end of the year and think, what do I want next year to look like? And often we give or receive gifts that express that hope for change and growth. And I think if we pause just to think about it for a little bit, most of us could think about some areas in our own lives where we wanted to grow. We wanted to make changes in 2024, uh, either to add something in or take something out of our lives. Is that fair? That's definitely true in my own life. I don't know about you guys. But here, here's, there's, there's bad news and good news. Okay, The bad news is change in your life will not come about by just adding something in or subtracting something out. That's not how 2024 is going to lead to change and transformation in your life. But here's the good news. God is committed to your change, to your growth, to your transformation, and actually is at work to change you. And the change that you're looking for in 2024 won't come about by aspirational Christmas presents. It will actually come about by seeing more clearly who Jesus is. See, we don't look inward to bring about transformation and growth. We actually need to look to Jesus to see who he is and what he's done for us. And, and friends, I take it that if we do that, it will bring about radical change in our lives, radical transformation. And so that's why we're looking at Psalm 110 this morning. As it was read out, I don't know how you found hearing that psalm. It's quite a radical, it's quite a confronting psalm. It's even shocking as you kind of read some of the, the language of this king and how he's going to relate to his enemies. But we've picked it because this is the most quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. This chapter reverberates around the pages of the New Testament and is used to show us something about who Jesus is. And so I take it if we don't understand or look at confronting passages like Psalm 110, we will not see who Jesus really is in all of his glory and splendor. And in doing so, we'll miss opportunities for God to transform and change our hearts. So that's what we're on about this morning, and that's why we've picked this psalm. Let's pray that God would do that work. Father God, we pray this morning that you would change us. You would change us not just in surface and shallow ways, but as we look to Jesus and see who he is and see how he is the fulfillment of Psalm 110, that you would bring about great change in us. You would help us to see and live for King Jesus as this song expounds through the pages of history and unto our lives today. Amen. 
Okay, first point in your outlines there, greater than David. So if you were confused about this psalm after reading it, don't worry, you're totally in line with most of history. So for the first thousand years after this psalm was written by King David, the Jewish audience, the Israelites, they had no idea what it meant. They, didn't, they just didn't understand. They didn't know who it was about. So pick it up with me in verse 1. It says, This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But it's important to notice that that's not the start of the psalm. Just above that, you might have seen a little kind of note next to the title. And it says, titled, Psalm of David. Okay, that's not an editor's edition that they've kind of put into the psalm. That was there in the original kind of manuscript as it came together in the psalms. And so the author of this psalm is David, King David, Israel's greatest king. The, the one who wrote most of the psalms. And he's speaking, isn't he, about this, this prophecy, this moment where the Lord says to his Lord. We saw in verse 1. And this is kind of confusing in English. But in the kind of original language that uh, David wrote in Hebrew, it's a lot easier to understand. You might have Lord all in capital letters in your Bibles there. Now, that's the name Yahweh. It's the name for God. It's the most common name for God in the Old Testament. And so what, what David is saying here is that God said to my Lord. Okay, and that makes it a bit easy to understand. And the second word, Lord, there, the one with just lowercase, that's the kind of the Hebrew word for master, Adonai. Okay, it's, the, it's a title used to show respect, to show honor. You would use it to speak to someone much greater than yourself. And so the question is, God is speaking to David's Lord, the one greater than him, his master, the one who deserves honor and glory from Israel's greatest king. All right, there's the context of the psalm. Who is that one? One greater than David, one greater than, you know, worthy of more honor than the greatest king of Israel. This is confusing. The Pharisees agreed. So leave a finger in Psalm 110, flick across with me to Matthew 22. I just want to show us how this psalm is used in the New Testament. So Matthew 22, flick across there, uh, verse 41. Okay, while the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, David. So these Pharisees, they understand their Bible and know that the Messiah, God's king, will come from the line of David. And Jesus then, he asked them, verse 43, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? And then he quotes Psalm 110, verse 44. The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? No one was able to answer him at all. And from that day, no one dared to question him anymore. Talk about a bit of a mic drop moment from Jesus. I'd love to be able to give answers like that, where it's just like, oh, no more questions asked. So do you see what's going on here? In the ancient Near Eastern context, the king, the ruler, the one that deserves all the honor and prestige would never call their son or their descendant Lord. It's not a title that you would use to describe one coming after you. David was the greatest king of Israel, arguably. And so while the Pharisees, they knew their Bibles, they knew that the Messiah, the king, was going to come from the line of David, a descendant of David, they just couldn't get their heads around how the greatest king of Israel would refer to this other king as Lord. It's this puzzle that just, they, they just didn't understand, and so they have no choice but to not say anything more to Jesus in the moment. And as the gospel narrative unfolds, we see that Jesus claims to be this very king, the Messiah, God's promised king. But he actually claims to be far more than that. 
And I think Psalm 110 gives us a picture of the more that Jesus actually claims. And so come flick back with me to Psalm 110. Let's have a look at it. Pick it up from verse 1 again. So this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. See, this, this king is not just like a human king. He, he, he sits at the right hand of God himself. Okay, when we think sitting at the right hand, I think we tend to think like henchman vibes. Like I was picturing like Dr. Evil and Mini-Me in Awesome Powers. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that movie. If you haven't, it doesn't make any sense. But it's the kind of the henchman vibes. But actually what's pictured here by this um, seated at the right hand is actually a share of the power, a share of the rule. There's an equality. See, to be seated is to have the authority. When, that, when Jesus is preaching, often he'll sit and the crowds around him will stand. Seated equals authority here. And so this is actually a term, seated at the right hand of the Father, for equality, honor, and power shared with the Lord, with Yahweh, with God, seated in God's throne room. And even more than that, we see that God will bring all the enemies under this one, like a footstool for his feet. When I was younger, I used to wrestle with my brother, and he's a little bit younger than me, and so you can imagine. I used to do this. I'd like pin him down with my legs. And what is that? It's a picture of total dominance. You can't get up. You can't move. I've got you pinned down. There is no struggle that you can do that's going to get you free. That's the picture of Psalm 110, of this king relating to their enemies. It's a picture of a king whose people are loyal. You saw in verse 3, didn't we? The people will volunteer. They'll follow them willingly because this king is worth following. Even into battle, even into hard moments, this king is worth following. And just like Israel did in lots of moments in the history, he's worth following and even dying for in battle. He's a king who, verse 5, he'll crush other kings. And back in verse 3, we saw it's not just that he crushes other kings, but he's got vigor. It's the Jew of the youth. He's like a young man in his prime. Kind of That's the picture that we get there in verse 3. And he'll crush other kings. He'll judge the nations. It's quite vivid language, isn't it? It's confronting. It's almost shocking for us to read verses like verse 6, judging the nations and heaping up the corpses. In verse 7, he's a king who'll drink from the brook. Now, I'm not 100% sure what this means, but I think what it means is that the battle is won, and so he's refreshing himself afterwards. It's a, it's a, it's a sign of a, a victory complete. You don't stick your head down to drink while there is enemies around you fighting. It's this picture of a king who is victorious in battle. It's simple, but it's evocative language. And I think the fact that it comes to us in song makes us pause and stop and just reflect. And you get the kind of the images that kind of wash over you in this, in this format. And it's confronting. See, Jesus is a king like no other. Jesus rules and reigns over all things. And he has all authority and power. And all of his enemies do not stand a chance. See, as, as we see this, this psalm speak of this king and we see it fulfilled in the life of Jesus... We, 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 it ought to pause and stop and make us just reflect. Often we just push Jesus a bit to the edge of our lives and other things take the priority and the focus. And a psalm like this reminds us of just how powerful Jesus really is. 
See, we might look to our boss or our prime minister or kings or moguls or CEOs or those with positions of authority in this world who hold the power. But really, if we understand this psalm rightly, we'll see that each of those other powers and authority figures in the world sits under the authority of King Jesus. They're all under the authority and permission of the king who rules and reigns, who is bringing all things to be a footstool, his enemies. He's not one of many kings. He's not one of many lords. He is the king of kings, the lord of lords. Revelation 19, we haven't got time to go and chase it up, but Revelation 19, speaking of the great rule and reign of King Jesus when he returns, uses this language. It uses Psalm 110 language to describe the rule and return of Jesus when he comes again. But what's most surprising here for us is not the kingship and lordship of Jesus. If, if you know Jesus, if you've read your Bible, we're aware of this. I think we need the reminder, but the most surprising thing is how Jesus is crowned king. So you come with me to Acts chapter 2. You can leave a finger in Psalm 110, but flick forward with me. I want to show you guys this. Acts chapter 2 uh, from verse 32. This is the context of this is Peter's speech. At the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit has just come and been poured out, fulfilling the prophecies of Joel in the Old Testament. And Peter gets up to preach and he says, this was God's plan all along. That David trusted God to send a king who would suffer and die and rise again and rule and reign all things. And pick it up with me in verse 32. He says, God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Do you see there what Peter's saying? See, in a sense, Jesus has always had all the glory. He's the eternal son, the second person of the Trinity who existed eternally back into the past. He existed before the creation of the world. He's the one who made all things. He's the everlasting one, the one who gives life and breath to everything in the world. And yet, in some strange way, through his incarnation, coming into this world, taking on flesh, through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus somehow deserves even more glory. Even more than what he already had, deserving all the glory of the world. It's, it's amazing. David could never have imagined that God's Messiah would be God himself. Come in the flesh, come as the promised king to, to rule and reign and enter into the world to deal with our biggest problem. And do you notice what Peter highlights from Psalm 110? That Jesus didn't stay dead. That he went to be at the right hand of the Father, exalted. That he's there now even. See, Jesus' resurrection is his coronation service. It's, it's the resurrection where Jesus is crowned Lord and Messiah. It's the resurrection where he's confirmed as the promised one of God who rules and reigns all things. He's worthy of even more glory and honor because of his death. His resurrection. It's this amazing moment. 
I was trying to think, you know like on Anzac Day when you see uh, the, the kind of veterans marching down the street or, or, or their children or someone in the family who's kind of wearing the uniform and the medals representing the veteran. You think about the life of someone who sacrificially went to serve their country and many of them whom died to give up their lives for the cause of freedom and security for us. And you think that that's so worthy of praise, of, of recognizing their self-sacrificial love. And then you kind of see the medals that they're wearing and, and their medals for acts of service or things that they've done in valor to, to love, to protect, to sacrificially serve others even more for, for bravery, for that kind of thing. And you go like, they're, they're already worthy of praising for what they've done, giving up their lives or, or serving and, and, and doing that for us, for our freedom. But now even more with the medals, you go, wow. It's worthy of recognition. That's, that's like Jesus' incarnation. He was already worthy of all the praise and glory and honor, and yet in coming to earth and taking on flesh for us, he's worthy of it in an even deeper, newer way. He's crowned king and Messiah because of his death and resurrection. Not despite this moment that looked foolish and weak and powerless in the eyes of the world, is the coronation of the king. Do you see, though, the sting in the tail of Peter's speech in verse 36? It says, God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Whom you crucified. See, who's the enemy of God? We think about Psalm 110. We think about God's king crushing God's enemies. Who's the enemy of God, of God's king Jesus? Israel have always had Enemies, you read through the Old Testament narrative and it's Egypt, it's Assyria, it's Babylon, it's the peoples that occupy the land of Canaan. There are always enemies around. And I reckon an Israelite who's singing this Psalm 110, they would have had those enemies in mind. right? God's enemies. We're God's nation and so God's enemies are our enemies. But Peter makes it clear, doesn't he? You crucified him. You crucified the Lord and Messiah. You, you Israelites gathered here, you are the enemies of the king, of King Jesus. See, Israel's biggest problem throughout the Old Testament narrative isn't the other nations around them. It's not the other enemies that they have. It's not the times that they are conquered or attacked or invaded by these other nations. Israel's consistent biggest problem in the Old Testament scriptures is their rebellion against God. It's their rejection of the king. See, despite the way that God had saved a people for himself and, and provided for them and cared for them and been like a father to them and given them a land and saved them from Egypt and done all of this for them, what do Israel continually do? They rebel. They forget. They complain. They search after other things rather than turning to the God who saved them. They consistently refuse to have God as their king. Why does it matter? Well, for you and I, the biggest enemies of God are also not out there. You and I were enemies of God. You and I, we've done the same thing. We've failed to acknowledge and live with Jesus as our king. We've decided that we would rather call the shots in our own lives rather than God. We're just like Israel. We too rebel. 
Each of us is an enemy of Jesus unless we've decided to step off our own throne and give that position in our lives to King Jesus. Each of us is an enemy of Jesus unless we've begged him to come and be the ruler of our lives and to save us and to, to, to do that work in us, to have us as his king. I reckon today, I spend a lot of time talking to people like Jesus. It just kind of comes up as soon as I say I'm a pastor. And, and, and just at the shops, at the gym, in my neighborhood, as I talk to people in my life, I think most Kiwis are ambivalent about God. I think most people kind of maybe have some kind of a faith, maybe they don't. But what, what they would say is, it's nothing too serious. They'd say something like, I reckon if God was real, he'd be pretty happy with me because I'm trying to be a decent person. I'm trying to do my best to you know, not, not be a bad person in my life. And so I think God would be happy with me. But if we've understood Psalm 110 correctly, and what it says about Jesus, there is no middle ground. You are either someone who has bowed the knee to King Jesus and accepted him as your ruler and Lord, or you are his enemy, the one who is going to come and judge, the one who will be crushed, it says in Psalm 110. This is both a comforting thing if you've accepted him as a king, but a terrifying thing if you haven't. The language of this psalm is confronting and it's designed to confront us as we listen to this song. There's a day coming when Jesus will come in judgment over all his enemies. As the ruler, as the Lord of all, and all his enemies will be put as a footstool beneath his feet. Every single person who's refused to step off their throne... And give Jesus his rightful place. Let me just speak to you for a moment. If you're in the room this morning, you've come along with a friend, you're here, you're checking out Jesus. Now is the time. There is a moment coming in the future when Jesus will hold all his enemies in defeat. Now is the time, now is the moment to come to Jesus, to accept his offer of salvation and to have him as your king. Now is the moment. Take it before it's too late. Because if we understand Psalm 110 rightly, we do not want to be on the wrong side of Jesus when he returns in judgment. In 1996, in Australia, in Tasmania, there was this gun massacre, the Port Arthur Massacre. You might have heard of it. It was a a terrible massacre. 35 people were shot down by uh, this guy with a high-powered assault rifle. And the Prime Minister at the time, John Howard, he said, hey... This is not okay. We're not going to be a country that has massacres like this going forward. And he declared a gun amnesty. He said, we're about to bring in the strictest, toughest laws of gun control that this country has ever seen. And there is a moment for a few months where if you've got illegal weapons, high-powered weapons, weapons that don't have a tag on them, whatever, you can bring them in. Bring them in. We're not going to ask you any questions. There'll be no consequences. We'll even buy these weapons for you because now is the time of amnesty. But if you hold on to them and we catch you with them after this time is done, then there's going to be the most severe consequences in the history of Australia. That's Jesus' offer for us in Psalm 110. The confronting reality of the king who's going to come and judge the world because of our rebellion. But the reality that there is hope if we'll just accept him as our king and, and take that offer of salvation from him. Come to him. Take that offer if you yet haven't. No questions asked. doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. He's paid for it on the cross. 
Now is the time of amnesty. And friends, for those of us who do trust Jesus, now is the time of amnesty. See, when we go about our Christmas this next couple of weeks, inviting friends along to church, having, trying to have conversations about who Jesus really is with family, friends, neighbors, colleagues, we're not playing games, are we? This is life and death stuff. This is eternal stuff if we'll see the reality of who Jesus is, God's king. He's far greater than David. He is the one that the greatest king of Israel calls his Lord because he is God himself stepped into the pages of human history to be our Lord and our king. He's greater than David. But he's actually more than that. See, here's the second point. Jesus is our forever priest. Come back with me to Psalm 110. I want to show us this. I kind of skipped over it a little bit before. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. See, God swearing an oath is a little bit superfluous. God can't lie. He's unchanging in his character. And so he, what's the point of swearing an oath, right? He can't lie and he's never going to change his mind. Uh, but the Bible records God swearing an oath. It does it a few times in the context of the Old Testament. And what it does is it emphasizes for us the importance of what God is saying. And so what is it that God's promising here? That the Messiah, the Lord, won't just be God's king and ruler over all, but he'll be a priest forever, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Now, you might be wondering, who's Melchizedek? He's a bit of a random figure. Uh, He's only mentioned once in the Old Testament, in Genesis 14. Uh, Let's flick there with me now, Genesis 14, verse 18 to 20. And what we see in the context, it'll come up on the screen if you don't want to flick. Uh, Abraham, who's just called Abram, this is before the formation of Israel. This is right back at the start of uh, when God called Abram to a new land. He's just won a battle against this coalition of kings. And he goes out to meet his allies to kind of celebrate the victory. But this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, kind of shows up at the party unannounced. It's kind of weird. It's kind of a bit, who is this guy? And so Genesis 14, verse 18, we'll pick it up there. It says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's the only mention that we get in the whole Bible of the Old Testament about this character, Melchizedek. And Psalm 110 picks it up for us. And, and was it saying he's this king of Salem? Uh, this is the city that later becomes Jerusalem when Israel go to the promised land. And, and note he's called a priest to God most high. And he has this role to bless Abraham who gives him a tenth of everything. Um, there you go. What do you do with that story? <clears throat> well, Psalm 110 says that God's king, Jesus, is just like Melchizedek. He'll be in the pattern of Melchizedek. And so there's a couple of things to note here. Melchizedek was a priest. But he's actually a priest before Israel as a nation even existed. He's a priest before the law was given, before the sacrificial system was set up, before the tribe of Levi was declared to be the ones who would be the priests over Israel. And so he's a priest, but he's outside the system. And not only that, but we saw that Melchizedek was also a king. 
Now, in Israel's history, when the sacrificial system was set up, kings and priests are not roles that you can hold at two times. Okay, They're kind of exclusive roles. The kings came from Judah. The priests came from Levi. The high priest was one role. The king was another role. But here's this king, Melchizedek, who is both the king and the priest. And he sits outside of the system of the old covenant law given to Israel. He predates Israel. See, why does this matter? Why does, why does Psalm 110 show us this little detail about Jesus being in the pattern of Melchizedek? Because we need more than a king. We need more than a king. The priest's role was to function as a mediator between God and the people. He had this kind of role to kind of sit in between and, and, and bring sacrifices to appease God and deal with the people's sin before a holy God. But the people kept sinning, didn't they? And so Israel's history, you get this long line of priests recorded where one priest would do the job and then they would die. Another priest would take on the job and the people would keep on sinning. So there's this repeated need for the priest to step in before God. And so we need a priest just like Israel to step in before God for us. We actually, just like Israel, need a priest to mediate for us. And our biggest problem today is not rising Food prices, broken relationships, sickness, losing our jobs. Our biggest problem is our own hearts, our own rejection of God, and our own need to have someone step into the gap between God and us and deal with our biggest problem. See, what good is having a king to follow if you come before God on the judgment day and you're still broken, you still have sin, you still haven't dealt with the reality of the gap that sits between you and God? You have this need for atonement. This is the language of at one, of, of dealing with the problem of our sin before God who holds us to account. See, that's the great beauty of Christmas. Jesus comes as king and Lord of all. The glorious one takes on flesh and is born as a little baby. It's, it's beautiful. But he grows up and he defeats our greatest enemies, sin and, and death. And, and he rises triumphant. But he also comes as high priest. He also comes and gives his life as a sacrifice once and for all for us. And he deals with the consequences of our sin and so steps into the gap between God and us and deals with that reality of our sin, of our brokenness. So that we can come before God as Father now. See, come with me, last place we'll flick, Hebrews 7. Hebrews is basically a sermon reflecting on different Old Testament promises. And chapter 7 is a sermon reflecting on Psalm 110. I'm not going to read the whole thing because we don't have time. But I just want to show us a a few ways that the author of Hebrews applies Psalm 110 to Jesus. Let's pick it up in verse 11. The first thing we see is that uh, because Jesus is a new priest, he brings a new law. See there, verse 11. Now if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear, said to be according to the order of Melchizedek, and not according to the order of Aram? For for when there is a change of the priesthood, there must be a change of law as well. Do you see there? The, The author is saying that because Jesus is a new priest, he sits outside the law, just like Melchizedek did, Well, then actually, we're doing away with the Old Testament law. We now have a new way of relating to God. He does away with the sacrificial system and gives us a much better hope. So you jump down to verse 17 with me. For it has been testified, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. 
So the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable. For the law perfected nothing, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Do you see what the, the author's saying there? The Old Testament system, it wasn't actually profitable because it didn't actually deal with our sin fully and finally. But now we have a better hope. A great high priest who has dealt with our sin fully and finally. See, as priest, Jesus is interceding for you right now. He's seated in the heavens, exalted next to the right hand of the Father. And he's interceding for you, pleading for you, praying for you, bringing your needs to your Father. He's doing that right now for all of us. And so we draw near to God as Father because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, interceding, bringing our prayers, helping us connect with the God who made us. Which means that we have a closeness to God because of Jesus' priestly role. We can experience care from God as Father, of of comfort in hard times, of, of closeness and security with the God who made us. And our access doesn't depend on our goodness, our holiness, what we've done, but on Jesus, our great high priest. Every prayer you've ever prayed, you can be certain that God will hear it and respond to you in comfort and care because of Jesus, our great high priest. He will never turn his back on you. He goes on in verse 20. None of this happened without an oath. For others became priests without an oath. But he became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. Do you see here the author picks up now on the promise, the oath that God made. He will not change his mind. And he uses it to show us what? How safe we are with this God. Because Jesus never dies. There's never a risk of the priest not being able to fill his function because he's died and so can no longer step into the gap between you and God. Jesus has risen from death. He's defeated death. He rules and reigns forever. And so we are safe because Jesus isn't going anywhere. He's not going to leave us. He's not going to die. He's not going to abandon us. And so we can have absolute certainty in God's promise. It's a a salvation that can never be taken away. Because Jesus, our high priest, will never die again. I don't know for you this morning what burden you're carrying around. You might be carrying one around. I don't know, the thing that you've done that maybe you feel like you can't be forgiven of, that God couldn't possibly hold space to forgive you of that thing, whether it's a one-off or something that you keep falling into that sin or that pattern or that brokenness in your life. No matter what it is, because Jesus is a high priest and he's seated at the right hand, exalted, and God has made the oath, there is salvation possible. Christ can save you completely, and eternally as you come to him. Because it's not based on your goodness or even your regret or even your ability to kind of completely deal with that sin in and of itself, but it's based on Jesus, his sacrifice for us. See, Jesus is the high priest that we need. So look at one last verse, verse 26. 
For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. That's Jesus, isn't it? That's the great one who was spoken about in Psalm 110 verse 4. The priest in the line of Melchizedek. That's who he is. He's holy. He's blameless. He's pure. He's set apart from sinners. He's exalted in the heavens. He's resurrected, ascended, and glorified. He is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. And so knowing that, knowing these things, Jesus is our great king and priest, it actually leads to us being able to make change in our own lives. Far more than some present that we get that is aspirational. See, because Jesus has died and risen from the dead, he's the king of kings. And, and, and when you accept him as your Lord and Savior, he actually starts to work in your own heart. And so you're no longer a slave to sin. That sin that is holding you down and weighing you back, bring it to him. Jesus can make change in your heart that you don't even think was possible. You've got a new heart now, so you can fight sin and live for Jesus. And because he's your great high priest, the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for you, you have relationship with God as Father. That's security and comfort. See, what we know of how change works in, in human, humanly speaking is that the best motivators for change is not guilt and not fear. They'll bring about small change and kind of short-term change, but they won't actually bring about real change. What brings about real change in your life? It's security. It's love. And that's what we have because of our high priest has made a way for us to be with our Father, our eternal Father forever. See, that's, there's the place where you can start to make change in your life with the love of God as Father. Because Jesus is our high king and high priest, all of our fears and anxieties, all of our plans, all of our designs, all the things that we have on plan for Christmas and beyond next year, all of our worries about ourselves, about our jobs, about our families, about the things that we're going to do this year, they all only operate under the rule and authority of King Jesus. Let's fix our eyes on him this Christmas. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for King Jesus. We are so thankful that when we get to read a psalm like Psalm 110 and we see the lordship of Jesus, his rule and reign, the way he holds all his enemies as a footstool under his feet. We are so thankful that while we were once enemies of Jesus, that because of his sacrifice for us, we can now be his uh, people. We can now come to a relationship with you as father. We are so thankful that because you made a promise, you made an oath and you will not change your mind and because Jesus is risen forever and ruling and reigning, he's seated at your right hand, that we know we can pray to you, we can come to you. And we pray that the reality of the kingship of Jesus, of his priestly ministry, would shape us and transform us as we fix our eyes on Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.